In his book, Not the Way Things Are Supposed to Be, Cornelius Planninga tells a story coming from the movie Grand Canyon. There's a pretty wealthy immigration lawyer driving an expensive car, comes to a traffic jam, decides to get out of it by taking a side street. As often happens in something like this, he runs down the wrong street and the streets get darker and more ominous by the block until suddenly, when he is alone, the car breaks down. That's what you get for buying expensive cars. A couple of blocks away, there's a fairly good-sized group of teenagers. They see the problem, and they see opportunity. They start moving their way toward the lawyer in his car. He is able to call for a tow truck, but before the driver can get there, they have surrounded his car. They have plans. They're going to strip his car, and probably do to him great bodily harm. But before they can do anything, though surrounding the car, the tow truck arrives. The driver gets out, pulls the leader of the group aside, and says, man, the world ain't supposed to look like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this is not the way things are supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job, and this man's supposed to be able to wait for his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than it is right here. If you could write one phrase over the last three or four years, you might write that, not the way things are supposed to be. There is inside of every human soul a deep longing for justice, for the way things are supposed to be. But the events of the last three or four years have been in some ways the opposite of that. And together with that deep longing for justice, which is holy and good, has come opportunity for anxiety, public anxiety that's been expressed in a number of ways. Some of those ways have been rather benign, simple. Others have been loud, violent, and disruptive. That we are now three years into this conflict and we cannot point to a single gain. In other words, what have we gained in the last three years in all of the discussion, in all of the anger? That we cannot find that ought to tell us that something is wrong. The desire for justice and the way things are supposed to be is itself a good desire, but perhaps we are not going about this in the right way. On the upside, we've all been awakened. Our souls have come alive. We are aware of injustice whenever we see it. We see poverty and we see racism. We see crime and corruption and tyranny. But those are the mountains of injustice. Underneath them, in the valleys, where almost no one is looking, is ours. It comes in the form of broken promises, fudged reports, work avoided, relationships severed, trysts on marital vows, cheating, avoiding taxes, the abandonment of the innocent. Those are the little granular effects of injustice. And while we may be shouting for justice on the larger scale, We seem almost immune if we even see 
the smaller forms of it in our communities or even in us. Perhaps the most troubling thing we have learned in the last three years is that our desire to create justice often creates itself more forms of injustice. When I was a kid, my parents took me to an arcade for the first time. There in my childhood, I was exposed to that glorious yet frustrating game called Whack-A-Mole. If you've not seen it, don't. It's a large board with several holes and little moles that pop up. You're given a mallet, and every mole that pops up, you are to whack it until it goes down. But the second it goes down, another one pops up. Everyone who plays the game plays it with the same enthusiasm at first. They come into the game with fresh eyes and quick reflexes. They're going to beat this game. This goes on for about 60 seconds until they realize the game is simply unwinnable. There are more moles, the same mole. Then I have time to hit them. And so the same thing happens in competitor after competitor. They get 60 seconds into this and they start to smile. That's when it occurred to them cynically that this game is never going to end. Every one I hit is going to create another one or two. They might play another minute or two, but after it occurs to them, you cannot win this game, they all put the mallet down and walk away. When I was a kid and I caught on to this, just before I walked away, I noticed the plug in the wall. And I thought the only way to beat this game is to go over and get hold of that plug and rip it out of the wall. And then hit that last mole for the final time. My parents stopped me and said it wasn't my game. But there was something in me, people, that wanted to get around back of that machine and rewire it. If I only knew how. You see, I think this is where we are today. I think every activist comes into the game with a brand new cause of injustice. They see something wrong in the world and they are armed with a mallet. And the second it pops up, they can't wait to clobber it. The fire is in their eyes. They need injustice. And so they hit it with all their fury, but it only creates another one or two, sometimes farther than they can reach. 60 seconds into the game, they start to smile while still clobbering the same mole because they know that the game is rigged. Every one they put down is simply gonna create another two. And they play maybe for a little while longer, but all of them eventually, every activist, every group eventually walks away cynical. And that is where the real injustice begins. When people are tired of playing, this is where I think we are. I think we've been hitting like fury every form of injustice. And our nation has been sensitive to every one of them. I could be wrong, but it feels to me like there is a compassion fatigue that is moving across our nation. And what scares me is that the people we've been protecting while we were playing the game will become even more vulnerable 
once we are tired and walk away. Church, we must not quit. But we must play the game smarter. We must be smart. What is needed right now, if the church still has one, is a vision for what the world looks like when it is the way it's supposed to be. Because without that comprehensive vision, we sit like some old guy at a card table with a puzzle of a thousand pieces. But we don't have the picture on the box. We don't know what we're putting things together for. What are we trying to help God create? And we are left with nothing but the futility of whacking the next thing that pops up with no thought or vision of what we hope becomes of the world. Not only that, but if we do not have a comprehensive vision of what the world looks like when it's the way things are supposed to be, each one of us gets caught within our own little tribes of causes, repeating our tropes that revolve around the injustice that rattles us, never mindful of the damage our activity is doing for other causes. Not only that, but the people that we rescue from these places of injustice, the ones that we free from the poverty or from the racism or from the crime and corruption, when we bring them out of it, if there is no comprehensive vision, they will become themselves oppressors. In the name of justice. Because they don't have another picture. They're not bad people. This is just the only way they know. The vision for justice in the Christian mind begins in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden Every human being knows that they were created by Almighty God Himself. And that is their most defining characteristic. Whatever their history, and whatever their culture, and whatever their differences, every one of them know they are stamped indelibly with the image of God. And that, not something else, is their most defining characteristic out of that image. And because God has dealt so well with them, they treat one another in a complementary fashion. All I mean by that is the differences and the qualities in each person of the garden only enhance the qualities in the other. The potential of one lies in the other, and they cannot find their potential, any of them, apart from a relationship that they're having with the other. And the way that they live with each other is a reflection of the way that they know and feel Almighty God is living with them. 
In the garden, people have desires and they have needs. They want to matter. They want to belong. They want a purpose. And yet all of these needs are met with abundance. It's all there. In the garden, there is no hiding and there is no hoarding and there is no competition and there is no comparing what I have with what you have. In the garden, there is no ego. There is no hubris. There is no history that overshadows us. One is free to become in the eyes of God and in the company of others what they were created by Almighty God to become. Now, I know this feels to some of you a little idyllic. But if Christians cannot keep that vision in front of them, if we cannot remind the world that there really is a garden and there really is a God who has really stamped every individual with meaning and with purpose, we will lose our own vision for justice. That is where it starts. There is a shorthand way of saying all of this. And it starts early in Genesis and it moves all the way through the scriptures. It's at its peak in the prophets. There's a word, there's an image, a concept that the Hebrews had. And it's righteousness and justice. It's what's called in grammar a hendiadis. It's two words to say one thing. The idea itself is so complex, you cannot ascribe a single word to it. You need another word that says something else, but is not opposite. So the two words and the two ideas sort of define each other. So in the Hebrew mind, you cannot have righteousness apart from justice. And you cannot have justice apart from righteousness. Righteousness in the Hebrew mind, sedek or sedekah, simply means to set straight. It means what's square. It's the measurement. It's the plumb line. It's the norm, the standard. It's the thing by which all other things are managed. But the most peculiar thing about righteousness in the Hebrew mind, and far different from righteousness in the American mind, is that righteousness to the Hebrew is always relational. Walter Reich wrote, writes, in the Hebrew mind, there is not such a thing as an abstract concept behind everything by which all things should be matters. It doesn't exist. Righteousness, he says, arises in the relationship between two people. And it is nothing more than aligning our behavior according to the claims that come out of that relationship at that time. 
In the Hebrew mind, righteousness is not some invisible code that we're all trying to become. Righteousness cannot happen apart from the relationship. And it's in that relationship, in that moment, at that time, one assesses and discerns what the claims of that relationship are. And then when one meets those claims in that moment, he has brought righteousness to the situation. In the Hebrew mind, there aren't such a thing as policies. Policies exist where there are no relationships. What regulates things are the relationships that humans have under God with each other according to each instance. Am I tracking? Are you with me? Justice is simply arbitrating the situation so it meets those demands. Justice looks for places where things are out of control and broken and justice, mishpat in the Hebrew, comes in and regulates those things. So righteousness describes the actions between us and justice describes the systems and the structures in which righteousness can occur, can occur. And one of our problems is that we have separated in America what in the Bible's mind is inseparable. So we have some people calling for righteousness without pursuing justice for the poor. No attempt to change the conditions of people that are on the margins or weak or poor. There is simply this call to be right and to have right positions for what they say, truth. But in the Bible's mind, there is not such a thing as rightness apart from an active and an even aggressive attempt to change the circumstances for people that are poor or marginalized or weak or victims of tyranny or oppression. Other people in our country have pursued justice with a fury that it has created unrighteousness, which they call collateral damage. Simply the price we all must pay for justice to reign. But people in the Hebrew mind, this isn't justice. Justice does not have victims. Whenever our drive for justice simply creates other victims and more damage, it lacks righteousness. Are you with me? Outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the dark edge of that city, Yahweh has a conversation with Abraham. Yahweh appears in the form of three visitors. Go figure. 
And there outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, they have a conversation about the future. And one of them says to the other, shall we tell him what we're about to do? What they're about to do is create a vast separation between Sodom and Gomorrah and the people of Abraham. These are the words of Genesis. Upon Sodom and Gomorrah, we will destroy it for the evil actions that are happening in the city. But among Abraham and his descendants, we will create a society of people that are righteous and just. There it is. There it is. On the day we were spoken into existence, the DNA is righteousness and justice. Sadly, the people of God cannot hold themselves up to the challenge. By the time we get to the prophets, it is not the world that is unjust. It's the people of God. Isaiah says, God looks for justice but sees only bloodshed. He looks for righteousness but hears cries of distress. Amos says, you turn justice into poison and righteousness into bitterness. Do you hear what he's saying? He's not saying we lack justice and righteousness. He's saying we have polluted it turned it into something it was not. That actually hurts people instead of helps them. Isaiah says, you deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed. And as a result, no one calls for justice anymore. No one pleads his case with integrity. And so justice is far from us and righteousness cannot reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. Our offenses are many in your sight, O God. Our sins testify against us. We've turned our backs on God, fomenting oppression and revolt uttering lies that our own hearts have conceived. As a result, he says, justice is driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter and integrity is nowhere to be found. Whoever shuns this evil quickly becomes the prey. He's describing us, isn't he? He's describing these last few years. As a result, Isaiah says, God looks and he was displeased. But the word displeased there does not mean he was angry. The word means he was injured, he was hurt, he was broken and crushed. God looks at all of the unrighteousness and the injustice and he isn't angry, he's injured. God saw that there was no justice and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. And so his own arm worked salvation for him. I got to confess, when I was at this point in Isaiah's sermon, my heart started to beat a little faster. I started thinking, man, he has nailed our predicament. And it looks like God is going to do something himself. 
He goes on and says, from the West, men will fear the name of the Lord and from the rising sun, they will revere his glory. For the Lord himself will come like a pent up flood. (laughs) That the breath or the spirit, the ruah of God will move along. That's church. Do you see what the prophet is saying? Some of you focus on righteousness and you've ignored justice. Some of you are all about justice, haven't thought a whit about righteousness. But the prophet is not condemning you for that. The prophet says Yahweh himself has his arms around both of you. He has gathered up the frustration both sides feel. And he has worn himself the frustration and the hurt that you have felt at one time or another in the last few years. Those feelings rise from holy impulses. And they are rooted in God first. What you do with them is another matter. So I begin to look for this pent-up flood that God is going to bring into the world Mm, that will just obliterate every form of unrighteousness and injustice. And what I got in Isaiah 42 was a servant. I wanted an activist. I wanted somebody with a fist, somebody with supernatural power to reset the game. What I got was a servant. Listen to it. Look, my servant whom I grip fast, my chosen one in whom I have joy. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Wait for it. He will not shout or cry out loud. He will not raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. In other words, no collateral damage. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice and he will not falter, he will not be discouraged and he will not stop until he brings forth justice 
on the earth. And in his instruction, the islands beyond the sea will put their hope. Look, says Yahweh, my servant, he is already in front of you. My spirit is already in him. My heart is already full of the joy. He is already active. And I began to play out in my mind, what is the difference then between what I wanted and what God sends? Well, activists are always motivated by something outside of them. It's always external to them. It's something that happened in the world. It's a cause. It's a movement. And they get amped up and they want to join it because they want to bring justice. But servants are motivated by what is in them. I will put my spirit in him. And so the disposition of an activist is often anger. But the disposition of a servant is joy. He will be my delight. It is joy and a holy discontent. The voice of an activist is loud and demanding. It draws lines. It creates ultimatums. It talks about being on the right side of history. And it forces people to choose the sides. Jeez. Do you really think there are just two sides of history? And do you really think you can know today what the future side will be? And do you really think that the right side of history doesn't have unintended consequences? History is full of unintended consequences committed by people with good hearts doing the right thing. But the servant is quiet, subtle, persuasive, suggestive, humble. He never draws attention to himself like the activist. He just quietly goes around changing this person or that one at a time. And he's patient. And he's unrelenting. He won't quit. You can't outlive him. And you can't beat him. The activist believes that injustice is rooted in systems, in kings and in princes, and so they are always calling for a revolution. But the servant believes that injustice lies in principalities, in powers behind the kings and princes, which not even kings and princes believe in. The servant knows that corporate lies believed by a whole nation at one time in its history, that is the power. The princes and the kings are just puppets. 
And so the servant is never calling for revolution. The servant is calling for a spiritual renewal. The servant is saying, if we will humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways and seek God's face, who knows? This is up to him. Who knows? Maybe God will heal our land. The activist looks for answers that are political. The servant knows that the only form of justice is relational. One person at a time, or it's a program. This is why governments cannot bring justice, not because they're evil. It's just that's not what governments do. You can't have a relationship with a government. The model for justice in the Christian mind is the Exodus, where God not only rescues his people from slavery, but he calls them to a festival with himself in the desert. Justice in the Christian mind is never just getting people out. It is calling them into reconciling relationships with oneself. We have not brought justice until we have brought a relationship with people. This is why Jesus' miracles, one at a time, were forms of justice. On this day, he sees a man with a withered hand. Rather than going to the medical profession, rather than going to the king of the day, Jesus goes directly to the man with a withered hand, calls himself the Sabbath, calls himself the temple, and thereby relocates the Sabbath and the temple, two of Israel's pillar institutions. He relocates them from sacred time and sacred space out to the places where the crippled people are. And in that moment, the one who is the Sabbath and the one who is the temple comes alive in the life of that man. And he restores his hand until it is like the other. Now tomorrow you will go into places where injustice is all over that system. Some of it you may have caused, but all of it I know in your heart you oppose. Everything in you wants to say the right thing. You want to be the prophet. You want to say the sentence and stick the landing so people will change their mind. But people, this is not how you Cure the evils of injustice. We must cure those things one at a time. Not with systems or with elections, but with relationships between ourselves and another. And by meeting the demands of that relationship in that time. Some years ago, I told a story. I want to tell it again to close. I, um, I, I told it, as I said, while I looked 
is 14 years ago. Some of you were not here. Shoot, some of you weren't born. Those of you that were here are now old enough, you won't remember it. But it has become for me kind of the model story for the way you fix the world. I'll have to read it. I've summarized several pieces to put it to you in this fashion. Philip Haley was an ethicist, trained as a soldier, specializing in the study of cruelty and goodness. Haley said, my approach to goodness does not use abstract nouns like justice. I use proper names and verbs because names and verbs keep us close to the facts. Armed with degrees in philosophy and the humanities, Haley began to study institutionalized slavery and genocide, eventually American slavery and the Holocaust. Cruelty, he learned, is an assault on a person's soul. It maims a person's dignity, he says, and it crushes their self-respect. And so in his books, I think there were four, he describes in vivid detail the names and events arising from hundreds of interviews had with victims and with their oppressors. The details are numbing. Institutional cruelty, he wrote, is the subtlest of all because the victim knows he is being hurt and the oppressor knows it too. But in persistent patterns of humiliation that endure for years, both the victim and the oppressor find ways of obscuring the harm. Blacks come to think of themselves as inferior or dirty, he says, and Jews come to think of themselves as weak or ugly, and over time, these images harden in the souls of a victim until it shapes their self-awareness long after they have won their freedom. At the heart of this cruelty, he says, lies an imbalance in power. Sometimes it takes the physical form, as in the case of slavery, but just as often, he says, it occurs in the subtle ways, the language, the jokes, the innuendos that reinforce the stereotypes and reduce the worth of a person while it elevates, if only subtly, the superiority of the guard or the master. Even acts of kindness, the guard gives him a piece of bread. The master smiles, grants him a favor, can subtly reinforce this disparity of power, or in the words of Frederick Douglass, it only gilds the chains. Haley wrote, hoping to find a little goodness. I started looking closely at the medical experiments done by the Nazis on children, mostly Jewish or gypsy. 
Here were the weakest of the weak. Not only were these the despised minority, they were individuals still in their youth. They were dependents. Here the imbalance in power was at its greatest. But instead of finding goodness, I found only a descent even lower into the abyss, feeling one moment angry at the Nazis and in the next pity for the children as they looked up at, quote, doctors who cut off the tips of their fingers and broke their slender bones and injured their organs for the sake of experiments. He wrote, I was not achieving my goal. I was becoming just another victim, paralyzed by anger or pain, and I was lost in the fog. So we started to read stories about the French resistance in World War II, hoping one day he might find one to inspire him. Then writes Haley, one day in April, I stumbled across a small article about a village called Le Chambon. And he said, when I read it, I wept with tears of hope and expectation like the kind you cry when you suddenly realize the ideal. And when I discovered this, he said, I discovered that goodness had names and it lived inside of people in definite places, even in the nightmare of history. Le Chambon is a village or was of about 3,500 people, but they were responsible for saving over 6,000 children, most of them Jewish. Under a national government, the French that were already collaborating with the Nazis and in some ways trying to outdo the Nazis, the people of Les Chambon began to house children. They forged documents. They kidnapped children, sometimes a hundred at a time from the camps and hid them in houses they built to hide children. Haley began to interview the citizens that lived in Le Chambon. He tells one story of an afternoon when a refugee woman knocked on the door of a farmhouse outside the village. He said the farmers in that area were all Protestants. These are his words. With one exception, they actually believed that every word of the Bible was inspired and they memorized parts of it. The farm woman opened the door and there was a refugee. She invited her to come into the kitchen where things were warm, standing in the middle of the floor. The refugee, with a heavily accented French, asked if she could have eggs for her children. The farm, the farm woman looked into the eyes of the shawled refugee and said, are you Jewish? 
And the woman started to tremble. But she could not lie. And so at a moment that usually marked the beginning of the end for the Jew, she said simply, yes. The farm woman ran from the kitchen to the base of the stairs and shouted upstairs for her husband and her children to come down. Because, said the woman, we have in our house this very moment a representative of the Christ. Haley said, I talked to them by the dozens and what surprised me is that not one of them thought of themselves as good and they sure didn't see themselves as heroic. Every one of them said they did only what every other person would have done. Haley said, what struck me was not the people's resistance. It was the loving alternative that they presented to their enemies, brute force. Thousands of people were murdering Nazis in order, presumably, to help mankind. But these people murdered no one and betrayed not a single child in those long and dangerous years before the war ended. They were, said Haley, the embodiment of unambiguous goodness. He wrote this up in a book called Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. He gave names and places to person after person helped by Le Chambon. One of them wrote, if today we are not bitter people, like most survivors are, it is because we met people like those in Le Chambon who showed us simply that life can be different. There are people who care. People can live together, even risk their own lives for their fellow man. But because no good deed goes unpunished, about a year after he wrote that book, some person quote, unquote, enlightened and now angry, wrote Mr. Haley a letter, and this is what it said. Dear sir, I have read your book, and I believe you mushy-minded moralists should be awakened to the facts. Nothing happened in Le Chambon, nothing of any importance whatsoever. The Holocaust, dear professor, was a geological event, like an earthquake. No person could start it, no person could change it, and no person could end it. And no small group of persons could do it either. No, no, it was the armies and the nations that performed actions that counted. Individuals did Nothing. You sentimentalists have got to learn that the great masses and big political ideas are what make the difference. Your people and the people they saved simply do not exist. Good day. Haley wrote, he was rattled. But he knew he was right. So he said, between me and that other person's position was a chasm so wide, no amount of facts was going to span it. So he wrote, I will counter with this. I was lecturing a few months ago in Minneapolis, and when I finished talking about the village of Le Chambon, a woman stood up. 
And she asked if that was the village in Haut Latour. Obviously, she was French with her accent. And all French people know that there were several villages called Les Chambons, just like there are several streets called Main Street in America. I answered that it was, in fact, the same village. And there was a pause. And the woman said, you have been talking about the village that saved all three of my children. She thanked me for writing the book because now she said the story will be permanent. Then she asked if she could come forward and say one sentence to the audience. There was not a sound, not even breathing, he said in the room. She came to the front and said, It is true, the Holocaust was the storm, the lightning, the thunder, the wind, and the rain. Yes. But Le Chambon was the rainbow. Church, we cannot stop injustice with so many of the tactics we have been trying. We must be smarter. You can't root it out. You can't change whole systems. That's above your pay grade. Whoever you are, the problem is so complex. You can't fix it. But the opposite of cruelty, said Haley, is not kindness and it is not freedom. For the effects of cruelty are still carried by the victim long after they get out. The opposite of injustice is goodness done by individuals in small ways. If you're looking for systems or big answers, you're looking in the wrong place. The real place will be tomorrow morning in your first meeting with the first person you see. And so I wonder if all across our congregation, I could ask a favor. I'm going to ask you in a moment to stand and gather in circles. I know if you're an introvert, you're breaking out in hives. Just, just be part of a larger circle. You won't have to say anything. Somebody else in the circle will pray, but I'd like us to gather in circles of anywhere from 10 to 30 if you want. And when you gather, if two or three of you could just lead out a simple prayer, asking God to make the people of our congregation in this room right now circles of goodness. Families, offices, locker rooms, living rooms, circles of goodness. 
And that's how we will win the day. Jesus, these next few moments are holy. Please, everything these people pray to you, hear from heaven. Amen.